Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Today is a special episode where I have an interview with a very successful historical author, Philippa Gregory. Philippa has written novels set in several different historical periods, though primarily the Tudor period and the 16th century. Some of her novels have won awards and have been adapted into television dramas. The most successful of her novels has been The Other Berlin Girl, published in 2001 and adapted for BBC television. Philippa has also published a series of books about the Plantagenets, the ruling houses that preceded the Tudors, and the War of the Roses. Her first book, The White Queen, published in 2009, centres on the life of Elizabeth Woodville, the wife of Edward IV. The Red Queen, published the year after, is about Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry VII and grandmother to Henry VIII. So, hello, Philippa, it's uh, so great to have you on the show. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. I'd like to talk first about your new book, Dawnlands. It's the third in a series of books, The Farewell. You're more well known for books on the Tudors and the War of the Roses, but this is a bit different based on the 17th century, more on the lives of ordinary people rather than the royalty and the royal court. Could you tell me why you made the choice to go in this direction? Well, I wanted to expand really into the lives of ordinary people and particularly ordinary women. A lot of my books that have been set in the Tudor courts and the Plantagenet courts have actually been about the ordinary women in the courts. So, you know, the really famous The Other Boleyn Girl is about Mary Boleyn, who when we meet her is just a relatively ordinary girl. She's from an aristocratic family, but she's not royal. Um, And this was a kind of expansion of that, that I wanted to talk about uh, a family who are just working people, uh, but they're caught up in the royal story, as so many people were in England at the time, because we opened in 1640, the book's called Tidelands, and uh, Charles I has just been arrested and is being held on the Isle of Wight, just 14 miles from where my heroine is trying to make a living basically in the mud of the harbour of um, Sussex. Uh, the next book, she's got herself as far as the as London. She's working on the side of the Thames and Charles II has been restored at 1660. And this third book of uh, the series is called Dawnlands. And the family now has expanded their business worldwide. They've got uh, outpost in Venice during the course of the novel they're going to set up in in Barbados uh, trading to the plantations and the slave owners and the the brother who was in New England as a Puritan Cromwellian 
supporter fleeing from the restoration comes home because he understands there's going to be a rebellion against James II, the last of the Stuarts. And so he takes the family into war against the king and his queen Mary of Medina at the same time as one of their relations takes the side of the queen Mary of Medina. So you have this, this relatively ordinary family literally divided on either side of this uh, rebellion against the Stuarts. Yeah, and also probably many of the family are also ambivalent. Or they don't want to support one side or the other. They just want to get on with their ordinary lives. I, I think, honestly, I think in most civil wars, there's, there's a, a silent majority just going like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> the the historical characters of, of Dorlands are a kind of not centre stage, they're a bit peripheral to the main story. Many of the female characters in your books are generally quite strong-willed. This doesn't seem to be the case of the kind of historical character of the wife of King James II of England. Oh, Mary of I Modena. Mean, could you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think she's. I think the thing is, is that she's a she's a young woman. She's married to a much older man. She's a second wife. She's not a first wife. She's a queen consort. She's not a reigning queen. So the amount of power and control that she can demonstrate is quite limited. But uh, you really see her stand up to him in the in when he wants his mistress in mm -hmm. court. Uh, the famously ugly, bad-tempered, bawdy rude Catherine Sedley and Mary Mary Medina insists that he stops seeing her and that for a Stuart queen is a complete departure nobody's nobody's done that to a Stuart before nobody's done it successfully to, to a Stuart um, and then when she realizes that he's losing uh, in this uh, sort of rebellion against him she manages and she gets people around her to help her escape on her own account so she's not completely helpless but she's very much as all historical women were limited by the role that she's allowed to play yeah yeah uh, she also suffered from a number of miscarriages and uh, children dying young so that must have been pretty tough for her <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, part of the, the what precipitates the rebellion is that she announces her pregnancy and she says with absolute confidence that she knows it's going to be a boy. And we believe that's because she's a very devout Roman Catholic and, and that she has had a, a revelation that she's going to have a boy who will be a son and heir to the English throne. But of course, he would be a Roman Catholic Prince of Wales, which... Uh, Basically, the English constitution doesn't allow. So it's it's that's what triggers a rebellion. And uh, there is then this great scandal about whether she does or does not smuggle a changeling, a baby, into the birthing room in the warming pan. And everybody now knows, all the historians know, that that's not the case. But at the time, it was genuinely believed by everybody that that was what she was done. And there was a government inquiry into the witnesses in the in the birthing chamber and whether anybody had actually seen the baby be born or whether there was any possibility that a baby might have come in in the warming pan. And of course, that's a wonderful topic for a historical novelist because you've got the absolutely understood historical truth. And at the same time, you've got a fiction they created at the time running. So you can run both together. Um, I, I found uh, one of the most interesting characters in the book, the, the young native Merkin woman called Rowan. Could you say a few words about why you wanted her to be in the book? I'm so glad you liked her. She's, she's absolutely 
one of my top favorite characters. I wanted to, uh, in a previous book, in the previous book, um, Dark Tides, we talked about the Poconocop people uh, of the East Coast of America, and they called their country Dawnlands, which is where I get the title of this book from, because they believed that they were the first in the world to see the dawn, because they had this sense of the continent of America behind them. And there's the sun rising uh, over Massachusetts, New England, Connecticut. It, I, went, I met with the Poconocop elders today and I went to their tribal lands to ask them for permission to tell their story and to research their story and they were incredibly welcoming and incredibly generous with their time and their oral history because they feel that they want their story told uh, because it's so much a part of I mean they are the they are the the nation that fed the pilgrim fathers it's literally they are the first people that uh, the colonists met when they came to America. So their story is of enormous importance and not very much told, not widely known. And the war that uh, destroyed them uh, is called King Philip's War, and it's not very much told either. So there's a whole story there which I feel should be told and needs telling. And then in the character of the people, in the nature of them, there is this courageous, persevering stubbornness uh, and that's a wonderful that's a wonderful nature to have in a fictional character so Rowan who uh, is one of the survivors is uh, looks like she's going to be enslaved to the Caribbean to the Sugar Islands on the defeat of her people in the war and Ned my um, Republican Cromwellian old soldier of course cannot see someone enslaved without trying to save them so he saves her thinking that she's a boy and takes her to England as his servant and then discovers in himself a real true affection for her and her freedom is part of the spine of the novel really which is how is this woman with so much against her in the world going to find her freedom yeah fabulous the focus of, of my podcast is on um, battles, um, mm. what leads up to them and the, the battles themselves, but the consequences as, as well. Um, so part of the Dawnlands book is, is the Battle of Sedgemoor of 1685, where an attempted rebellion against King James II of England was, was defeated. So that's the so-called Monmouth Rebellion. So in my podcast, I sometimes talk about counterfactuals, how events could have turned out differently in history. And battles are one of the key kind of inflection points where one relatively small thing could make a difference between victory or defeat. Do, do you think that rebellion could have succeeded and what could have been different if it had? Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it is a battle that could have gone either way. And the mischance that 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 meant the defeat of Monmouth uh, was an extraordinary mischance. They were coming to a they were in very marshy territory where uh, the land is intersected with ditches, drainage, deep drainage ditches, and they and the ground was at that time dry, but the ditches were quite deep. And um, they're literally approaching under cover of mist and darkness to the royalists who are encamped behind a sort of a ditch, which is like a moat. And the plan is, is that they shall skirt round the back the Monmouth army shall skirt round the back and force the royalists forward out of their position, which means they will have to go down into the ditch and climb out the other side to be greeted with withering fire. Um, and it 
it's a good plan. And they'd done something very similar in a previous battle. So they knew they could execute it. They could do a, an almost silent march at night, even though they were an army of uh, volunteer and they're mostly tradesmen and yeoman farmers and the middle class uh, people of that period. But they had the discipline to do a, a, a march at night and they had cavalry. Um, and so they're approaching the Royal Army and it just happens that there's, there's a scouting party out who fire a shot and one man, one officer gets away from the scouting party and rides to the Royal camp and wakes them up, gets them up. And they're all drunk anyway, and they're all asleep and they just charge around in total chaos. And even then it might've been okay, but they managed to get the cannon up. And so the, the Monmouth army that's waiting for them faces a really withering cannon fire across the ditch. Uh, the Royalists aren't driven out from their position and the Monmouth army have to attack them into cannon fire through the ditch. So in a sense, the whole of plan of the battle has gone the wrong way round, and they can't possibly win it. So they start a pretty orderly retreat and that might have been all right as well. But then the, uh, the their own cavalry bolt and plow in through their own army and then it's over. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. But of course, a couple of years later, there was the successful Glorious Revolution of 1688, and so which definitely changed the history of England and of Britain. And do you, do you think of the world potentially as well? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, what what comes in with William and Mary and then subsequently the Hanoverians is a really expansive, confident uh, Church of England notion that uh, basically the world belongs to the English, and that uh, everywhere is, is up for grabs, really. And of course, that has consequences ultimately for yourselves in America, where there's um, a real turning against that, going like, no, we want to be, we ourselves want to be independent. We ourselves come from this notion of British independence, and that we want that for ourselves. So yes, it is, it's, it is a changing point. Also, it's the introduction I think for the first time of a of a constitutional monarchy, a monarchy which is supported and limited by parliament. And that's an experiment which has lasted in a number of European states and a number of other states, and indeed has lasted in England today. So it's a it's a pretty major change. And it wouldn't have come about if Monmouth hadn't, in a sense, raised the revolutionary consciousness mainly only of the West Country, but really profoundly the fact that uh, so many people wouldn't accept James II is what makes it possible for James's daughter, uh, Mary, to come in with her husband, William, just three years later. OK, uh, yeah, that's interesting. One other question about, um, I don't know if you listen much to, to podcasts, particularly kind of history podcasts, there, there are lots out there and I listened to some. I've, uh, do you, are you going to ask me what? Because I can tell you, but I'd yeah. have to look. Yes, I tell you. So one of my favourite ones is absurdly called "You're Wrong About," which is recent and current history. Um, and the other ones that I watch are uh, "In Our Time." Oh yeah, Melvin yeah. Bragg. Yeah, I love that one. Talking politics, history of ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, revolutions that's a great one complicated and 
Oh, I've just seen, I haven't listened to it yet. It's called Not Just the Tudors, which is a history hit. Yeah, okay, yeah, there, there were so many out there, yeah. It's yeah, brilliant. yeah, so many out there, and they're really, some of them are really, really great. Okay, fantastic. And 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 lastly, any any kind of sneak peek as to kind of how the kind of series is going to move on in the future? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm taking a break from the series for a, at least a year, because next year I'm going to publish a book that I've been working on for six, seven years now, which is the history of the women of England. Uh, going from 1066 to 1992. So it's an enormous book. Um, but basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to match the sort of big national history books that the Victorians did so well, and they only write about men. But the fact that they only write about, about men is almost completely obscured. So this is going to be something which starts, uh, I hope, a national history of English women. Um, and then when I come back to this series, uh, I think I'm going to start at about 1720. I think we're going to do, uh, our family is going to be involved in the great uh, scam of the South Sea bubble and um, probably go on to, uh, if I can do it in the time, uh, French revolutionary radicalism. So I've got a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, well, I look forward to that um, in good time. So thank you so much, Philippa, for your time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I certainly enjoyed speaking with Philippa, and I hope you enjoyed very much listening. As a reminder, if you like the show and would like to support it and help keep it going, please go to patreon.com slash history Europe. Thank you so much for your support. Next time we get back to the regular schedule and turn to a conflict between the Russians and the Ottomans, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 to 1878, and the troubles brewing at the time in the Balkans region of Europe. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.